Welcome to the Johan René Podcast, where we dabble in philosophy, sample a little culture, perform some politics, grapple with history, and make a dip into religion. With me, your gezonde Dutch host, Johan René Schaper. My guest today is Levi Morrow, and he is from Eretz Israel. He's a teacher there, and he is a writer. He has published for uh, online uh, magazine. You should check it out, The Learn House. Uh, I'll put some links in later. Um, and he is someone who introduced me through his writings to Rav Shagar, and I wanted to explore the ideas of Rav Shagar. And um, I figured, you know what, I'll just ask him on the podcast and ask him about it. So, Levi, how are you doing? Doing well, Leo. How are you? Baruch Hashem, I'm doing great. So, Rav Shagar, what can you tell me? He was born after the war, right? Um, he was born in 1957. Okay. Uh, so, in, with the, uh, in the new land of Israel. Okay. What can you tell me a little bit about his life? And uh, Wait. His... Sorry. I messed it up. 1950. There, there makes more sense. Okay. What can you born tell me about his life? Um, well, so he was born in 1950, um, just into the new uh, state of Israel, um, and grew up with the state. Um, in his 20s, he was uh, one of, I think, not the first class of Hezer students, but pretty close to it. Studied at Karen Biavna and then at Yeshiva Takotel. Um, and and he's at Takotel. He's he an Israeli Dati Lumi, right? Like a, yeah. a religious nationalist, he, translated like that? Um, Dati Lumi is religious nationalist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he also was uh, very much part of the like religious Zionist community as it really became um, a community with a, a really strong, coherent identity around the teachings of Rav Cook and then the, towards the end of the 20th century. So that's um, both Rav Ramislav Cohen Cook, um, the father, and his son, Rav Yehuda Cook, um, who Rav Shigar seems to have studied under at, for a brief period of time at Merkaz Harav. Um, Rav Shigar, at a relatively young age, became a, uh, a teacher at Shiva Hotel and was even uh, Rosh Hashiva there briefly for a year when Rav Hadari, uh, who passed away in the last few years, um, was on sabbatical. Um, so that was sort of where he got his start in the yeshiva world. Um, but while he was in uh, while he was at a hotel, he also served in the Yom Kippur War. Um, and it was while he was in the Yom Kippur War that he was injured very badly. Um, he was in a tank and uh, along with two of his uh, friends from Yeshiva and um, the tank received a direct hit from an anti-tank missile and he was the only one who survived and spent months in the burn unit at Rambam Hospital in Haifa. Oh, wow. Okay, so Rav Shagar is clearly a, 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 a pure Israeli Chacham uh, because I never heard of him in, in America until recently. Uh, is he well known in Israel? Um, well, he's more well known than he used to be. So um, even like 10 years ago, he was just starting to become more broadly known. Um, he, he died in 2007. And there were a few of his books were published in his lifetime, but not many. And uh, I mentioned he's been at Kotel, but really when he, um, when he left at Kotel in 1984 or so, um, he went to a couple of other smaller uh, religious science institutions um, he helped uh, open some of what we can't like have had uh, lots of influence in these institutions. Uh, one is Makor Chaim, the yeshiva that Rav Steins also opened with Rav Shagar and Rav Nachum Froman. Um, it closed after about two years, and then Rav Steins would reopen it as a high school. Um, 
Menachem Froman, is that the yeah. is that the famous uh, uh, settler rabbi who tried to reach out to the Arab community? Is that the same one, or is this a different? Yeah, the same, the same one. Uh, he's a very interesting character in his own right. Um, but he and Roshigar were very close for the rest of their lives. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, it's another interesting figure to talk, think about and talk about. Um, so when I first of heard of Rav Shigar, people casted him in a post as a postmodern Jewish thinker. Now. To me, postmodern is, of course, like Foucault, Derrida, a little bit Stanley Fish, you know, and I thought maybe maybe this is like some new reading of the text through like sort of a Stanley Fish postmodern lens. Um, but then as I start reading more, it, it, it's much more complex than just saying, oh, he's postmodernist or, or, or he's, um, he is a, sort of a, a mystic, <laughs> postmodern mystic. So how would you, how would you describe his Ascafa, especially in relationship with like the claim of postmodernism? Um, right, so I, th I think it's probably uh, not the most correct to call him postmodern. Um, he was very eclectic and was sort of always looking for the right tools to, you know, re-articulate what he thinks as sort of classic Jewish ideas and understanding Jewish texts in a way that makes sense with his lived experience, the lived experience of his students. You know, if you take seriously that where you are in your your historical situation in life is some place that God put you in some sense, then you that is itself, uh, it's not necessarily a sort of revelation that would override the Torah, but it has some sort of religious significance and you shouldn't ignore it. Um, you should take that seriously. So the fact that he experienced the, the Yom Kippur War um, colored very strongly all his understandings of the state of Israel and Zionism, but also of um, like questions of right and wrong, theodicy, tzaddik, rabo. Um, and those are, those are all questions we have to take seriously and try and really reevaluate, give different answers than our parents were giving because they were all in a different generation. Um, so when he does eventually encounter postmodern thought, he finds it to be a very useful tool and language for rethinking about his text, but it's not a, a a term I would apply to, apply to him broadly. He was doing the same thing with existentialism before he was uh, doing postmodernism. And I think also um, for people who know postmodernism before they would read Rav Shigar, uh, it would be very frustrating to call him, see him be called postmodernist because his, his definitions are not even internally consistent across different texts. He doesn't always define postmodernism the same way, but they certainly don't like match up to external standards. Um, so like Sartre, for example, whether Sartre is an existentialist for him or a postmodernist really depends on what he's looked, talking about in Sartre. Like he talks about Sartre's interest in decisions and stuff, he usually calls that existential, part of he calls it postmodern. When he says Sartre denies having a sort of fixed essence, um, that he calls that, um, that postmodern. Um, uh, right. More broadly, like he's interested in say that post and postmodernism as anything that comes after modernism, um, as if modernism was one thing. Um, which for him, it really is the teachings of Rav Cook and religious Zionism over the course of the 20th century. And that postmodernism is a sort of critique of that. But that's, that's not how other people define postmodernism. Right. Now, so this is what I call uh, sort of like the, 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 the overall term postmodernism as a non-academic discipline, right? It's just like how people use the word, like, oh, it's postmodern. Like, yeah. Okay. I got into Rav Shigar because I heard a couple of teachers who mentioned him offhand, that he's the only rabbi who really dealt with postmodernism. And the only thing I knew about postmodernism is that people, like religious people, use it as a word that means everything wrong with Western culture, right? Postmodernism is a bad word in religious uh, society. 
so interested me that it was a rabbi who was like involved in it seriously. I knew nothing about postmodernism at the time. Um, and so I like started doing it. And he does take it seriously in the sense of like not just writing it off as something bad ahead of time. Um, but he does not take it seriously in the same way that academics do in terms of like historical study of a specific well delineated phenomenon. Right. So he, he, just to be clear for, for listeners that are more philosophically inclined, I guess. So in postmodernism, what you do is you deconstruct something. And then Foucault and Derrida, they basically left it, like deconstructed. And then later, like in critical theory, people will add in like whatever reality is can be deconstructed into narratives. And, and since everything is narratives, you can have your own narrative. So almost everything is, seems to be relative and then you can fill it in with your own narrative. But when I read Rav Shagar, he clearly believes that there is a God and that God isn't telling him. And that is not just a narrative, that is a objective reality. Or, I mean, um, this is, you're not you know wrong <laughs> a little more complex than that I think um, where he does talk about the idea of like oh there's no um, objective truth it's just different sort of uh, narratives he then critiques that position with the sort of common critique that the, the statement there is no objective truth is an objective claim right. um, so you have to nuance that somehow um, so he says like subjectively speaking it's um, there is no objective truth, um, which mostly just means, and this is sort of what postmodernism means for him overall, um, two things. On like a philosophical level, I cannot, but also don't need to like prove my claims. I don't, don't need to be totally demonstrative of things that are like non-empirical, um, of like values and uh, belief and things, because they're not, they're not supposed to be totally like provable and they're not provable, so I shouldn't even bother trying. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, that's the same claim you'll find in Rev Soloveitchik um, in the name of Kant. Um, but for, um, for Rav Shigar, it's postmodern. Um, and then, whereas Rav Shigar, or Rav Soloveitchik will then cite Kierkegaard about how no one needs to prove, um, Kierkegaard, maybe Pascal, no one needs to prove the existence of their lover um, the same way you don't need to prove the existence of God. For uh, Rav Soloveitchik, the pivot from philosophy. Kierkegaard. Um, Kierkegaard's critiquing Pascal, that's what that is. Um, right, so the, for, for uh, Rav Shagar, he's going to pivot not to the, like, God as your lover, so much as God as the, uh, like, infinite uh, divine of the mystics, and be like, and our religion, like, you can't, um, our relationship with God is just one version of the divine infinite. There is no, like, one thing in the divine infinite, the same way you can't prove your religious claims based on like observable reality they also aren't like provably divine like if you could somehow get access to god you wouldn't be inexorably led to the conclusion that you know torah is me sinai because god is just beyond everything right i think that's very important for people to realize because when we say postmodern and in these kind of terms it often implies that one denies objective reality completely, but often people that are called postmodernists do not deny reality. They just deny, it's like the Greek skeptics, like they deny our ability to be objective to the extent that uh, that one cannot be without doubt. I saw, I saw a rough Shagar quote, actually. Let me get it if I can find it quickly. So that we cannot prove our values and there is always an element of doubt, right? So that is not a denial of the objective truth of certain things. That's just that proof cannot always reach us to certain things. And 
Right. So I said that where he does go farther than that, this is what I was getting at with the, the Kabbalistic uh, model of, uh, he says God is, is uh, he makes use of the, the distinction of God as, um, is you can speak of God within human reality, um, and he's filling all worlds versus sovevko, I mean, outside all worlds. Could you elaborate um, a little bit on and, that? Yeah. So when the, the Arizal talks about the creation of the world as um, simtum, um, it involves the idea that God withdraws from a space within which um, the creation then happens in that space. Um, it essentially allows for distinction between sort of God and not God, God and other than God, um, which then at a certain point in the process of interpretation and understanding um, becomes in this more sort of Hasidic version of God outside reality and God within reality. Memeleko, um, I mean, God fills reality. Um, which Shigash is like God appearing within normal human categories of understanding, good and bad, up and down, left and right. Um, those are rules that the world follows that have meaning to us um, and sort of outside of the world, God outside of human categories and outside of the limitations of con constructed reality. Um, then God has no rules. God is beyond everything and sort of everything is open uh, all possibilities remain possible. Um, and Shreva Shagar says, if you could sort of take that perspective, then you would realize that, um, in the words of the Zohar, Kulak Kameh Hilah Hashiv, everything before God is, is nothing, that there's sort of no meaning to our reality. There's a sort of a Hasidic move of what's called Bitul, of self nullification, of recognizing that your reality doesn't really have meaning in, in sort of the greatest sense. Um, and he differentiates between like Hasidut and postmodernism. And he says that po Hasidut wants you to maintain that awareness and then return to sort of a normal way of life, return to being invested in your own lived experience, return to being invested in the religious tradition um, in which you live versus he says postmodernism wants to turn the like divine perspective into the human perspective and I'll live purely based on that sense of like nothing has any meaning. Uh, right. Would you say that uh, that um, this is some complex? <laughs> this is some complex stuff. Um, so, would you say that 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 Rav Shagar's God as sort of the Kabbalistic aims of it transcends logic and it transcends uh, our categories of thinking, right? And yeah, that's important for him. Uh, like that's a theme that comes up throughout a lot of his discussions. Is that God is at the very least beyond, and in some texts, even almost opposed to sort of normal human categories of understanding. Like like the, the phrase in Yeshiau, where like he says, my mind is not your mind, That's those kind of texts. Yeah, How does he... I would even go further and say like the, 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 the phrase, your, my mind is not like your mind. Both of those are within the human concept and that the, any language is already too human for God. Oh, so he, he, he... Even revelation itself is is. Um... He has a, a passage where he talks about it's an essay uh, or drasha first shavuot um, that he gave a little before he died, um, where he says like what he's talking about revelation. He said what meaning could revelation have? What what meaning could like, connection have? When even connection is a Hebrew word zika is a human term. Like the idea of God coming into a relationship with humanity on whatever level you might decide constitutes revelation like whether you mean that means word for word or on a much more minimal level of some sort of experience of presence all of that is a human way of framing it 
um, like he ultimately arrives at essentially the problem that um, in a very different vein, dialogic thinkers, Buber, Rosenzweig, Levinas, um, and it's, are dealing with um, is a really good book, um, dense and hard to read sometimes, but um, a Jewish called the Theology, I think, um, which goes through a bunch of thinkers, uh, those dialogic thinkers I mentioned, but also Karl Barth and then eventually Derrida, talking about the problem of trying to bridge the unbridgeable gap between the self and the other, which for Barth and as you know, the person in God. Um, but if there's if there's a true otherness, right? Otherness is is designed as a <laughs> this, is, this is a deep dash, but otherness is designed as a negation. When we think about like otherness is by denying it, it has anything to do with who you are, with the, who you are as yourself. The thinkers like Martin Buber, for, uh, Levinas, have essentially converted Rambam's like negative theology, that model of negative theology, into um, interpersonal relations. That the way it works is if I'm going to make space for you, then I have to, to negate all of my own ideas about who you might be. So for what Shigar is getting at a little bit in that drusha, which is what, where Levinas really ends up, is that there is no possibility for relationship. There's no possibility for bridging the gap between you and the other person because any way of bridging the gap, any way of making, of like understanding the other person is only by putting them into your own categories. Um, and that is for, for Levinas, it's already like a form of almost conquest. Um, wow, yeah, this is, this is, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, as you speak, I'm thinking. So how does he then see mitzvahs because these are just human language terms and 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 and, and especially in, in light of reward and punishments like if you have such an abstract i'm going to say abstract god maybe transcending god and that everything even revelation itself uh, even his will on earth right his rots on on earth revealed would be um would be just human language how does he see mitzvahs and the binding nature of mitzvahs and reward and punishment that, that comes from mitzvahs. Right, so that, that in that same drasha, he um, essentially appeals to um, Chabad thought, talking about um, sort of God's presence being, or God's wisdom um, being garbed in human existence. Uh, and part of what the, uh, the, the Admor Zakein, the Balatani was grappling with in some of the passages quoted there is um, the like basically Parshat Mishpatim, right? Parshat Mishpatim is, it comes right after the great revelation of Har Sinai um, and is just full of very historically situated laws about slaves, laws about animals. Like, I feel like most um, like Jews these days, before they ever see an ox, learn about oxes in the Torah and in like Baba Mitzvah and stuff, but with um, most, let's say, Orthodox Jews, um, like the just basic terms and like reality of the Torah is speaking to is not our reality. It's a very clear historical reality. Um, so he deals with, he's trying to express that God does in some way bridge that gap, but it's not because God, like the, the words of the Torah, the, you know, the ox, the, um, the slave, all of those things that Torah speaks to are things that in a sense God appropriates. And you have to learn to find God within them, rather than assuming they themselves are somehow re like representative of God in Himself, God in God's self. Like, is God? 
Uh, as I was saying before, that God is sort of beyond human categories, and those categories are only ever a specific way God might communicate um, and are not determinative of God himself or God, God self. Um, he at some point likes to use the phrase, we, do, we have no handhold in God. There's no, like, this is what he calls postmodern, we have no metaphysical handhold where we can grab onto in order to say, look, our path is the right one. Because God isn't, you cannot say you can hold on to. God is beyond any handhold. Right. Uh, how, so would Russia Garden say if someone is not religious or is of a different religion, that is itself a similar expression as a religious Jew? Like a sort of a, I'm asking in sort of a context of a, context of a pluralistic religious pluralism where like multiple religions can have truth or, or be on the same level, I guess. If you, so that's a good question. Um, definitely the statements like I was just mentioning about like God beyond all human categories and God sort of this mystical infinite that gives rise to everything uh, absolutely would seem to suggest that. Um, here's a couple of other passages that maybe point in that direction as well. Um, it happens to be, I always laugh, as far as I know of two places where he um, speaks explicitly about like non-Orthodox Judaism and in both of them in order to say he doesn't think it like he's critical of it in some way or another one place he says look i can't say they're defining judaism wrong or whatever that's how they define judaism i have no ability to say they're wrong all i can say is those forms of judaism don't create jews like i think of jews like he's just differentiating himself but another place he says look i don't understand the idea of judaism without masora uh, and uh, without getting into like the degree to which his understanding of non-orthodox jews is correct he sees them as sort of not having masora and for him that uh, is a was a fundamental breakdown, right? So within a system of what we call Judaism, which is uh, here and around us, he would say within that system he ca he can't relate how that it's a continuation of that or expression of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so that's those are like where he makes a point of denying them. But I say saying that he's like his overall sort of metaphysics um, doesn't really uh, give him grounds for saying other people are wrong. Um, but that gets back to what you think you were saying that a lot of it's less about denying um, objective reality and more about denying our ability to prove anything objectively and our like ability to say, oh, I know what objective reality is. So um, just a text I was looking at today was a drusha from after the disengagement from Gaza and um, Northern Shomron, uh, which was very hard for Oshigar and sees a lot of very powerful discussions about like Emuna in general um, in context of Emunot's uh, beliefs about the land of Israel specifically. So he says, like, look, we believe, he's talking the religious Zionist community, says, we believe that we have the right to the land of Israel. We believe we've been here and we've always cared about this land and it's ours. Um, and the Arabs believe the same thing. And they have just as much right to their belief as we have to our belief. And we neither one of us can prove our beliefs. Um, so all we can really do is commit to our beliefs and really like, recognize that, you know, even without being able to prove them, committing to Emunah is what Emunah is about. Emunah is only, uh, like, it's because it's not provable. The category that applies, is, like, in terms of justifying your Emunah is not demonstration or evidence, it's commitment. Commitment is what sort of gives basis to faith. Well, what place would there be then for argument, though? Like, the, is there any place for arguments in Rosh Hashanah? Um, it's a good question. Um, I think essentially it comes down to 
um, you know, you have to have common ground in order to argue. So that will always be situational, right? In any given situation, you can probably find common ground with people. Um, in an essay on uh, ethics and relativism in the postmodern world, um, he deals with that problem. He's like, well, we can't prove people are wrong, um, but we need to make a society. Um, he's living in Israel, which is a uh, like multinational society, um, whether, you know, whether Israelis like it or not. Um, and that depends on the Israelis. Um, there are lots of different groups of pe people living here. Um, so he basically says um, an answer that um, he doesn't cite uh, the philosopher Jürgen Habermas, but it's something like what Habermas is looking at in terms of like sort of enlightened social societal conversation, um, trying to reach some sort of cooperative uh, arrangement and balance that will allow for ethics without trying to have any one group impose their ethics on anyone else. Right. It's, I mean, basically the struggle of, of, of modernity in, uh, I guess, post-modernity, really right. since, um, since the peace of Westphalia in the West, like how do we deal with all these? So doesn't, he doesn't really get down to like, well, how is that supposed to work if you have fundamental disagreements? He just that says that's what we have to do. We have to manage a conversation. Uh, right. No, and that's, yeah, it's a practical approach because, you know, people are dying and suffering, right? You have to come to a conclusion and make a practical approach, right? I hear that. It's, it's very hard it's, because he's not, I'm having an interview with him, you and not him. It's going to be very hard, of course, to pin down anything. And I don't want to be the... Uh, analytical guy who's going to just like go into whole like uh, try to uh, rip it apart and see what like what's going on over there because we just have not enough information probably of Ruf Shakar's whole worldview to uh, to do, do an analyze to, to analyze that on that level uh, at least not with the two of us right now so so um, I want to skip to the next point let's first ask me let's first ask you what was your attraction to Ruf Shakar? I see a lot of people feel that he's he's the man of the moment, like he's something that is worthwhile for their Judaism and has enriched their Judaism, has helped them with religious struggles, things like that. So what is to you is the appeal of Rav Shagar? Um, well, I can speak on, on two levels that are related. Uh, question of what first appealed to me in Rav Shagar and then um, what sort of appeals to me more now. Um, and that the first thing that appealed to me was um, his sort of uh, forthright willingness to criticize uh, Ruf Cook Sr., the father, um, who uh, I studied in various issue votes before I ever encountered Ruf Shigar, where um, the dominant way of thinking was um, that of um, Robert Musclock, Coco, and Cook. And I found it very powerful, very drawn to it, but there were like certain issues that um, I just couldn't get on board with and I didn't agree with. Um, and there wasn't really space for that necessarily. Like I definitely felt like I was out of place for, for that. And Shigar was someone who like to the end of his life would insist that he was like following in Ruf Cook's path as, as much as possible, more than, than plenty of other people. But that in order to do so, you had to be willing to criticize Ruf Cook and willing to, to change uh, what you were saying, what your doctrines were the same way Ruf Cook was himself sort of a, a revolutionary in Judaism. Um, and so because of, the, because of that, he both identified with Rav Cook and was very willing to criticize Rav Cook. Um, the famous example, or the best example is probably the idea, or Cook's idea of holy freedom. Cook says that if a Jew acts freely and like really gets in touch with their authentic inner self, 
um, and acts in a way to sort of bring that self outwards, that will lead to them automatically doing mitzvot, right? A Jew who's being sort of totally authentic and, you know, we, um, it's a very romantic sort of ideology, um, will automatically do mitzvot. And Rav Shigar um, talks about being on a panel with other religious Zionists, Rosh Yeshiva, who are talking about this holy freedom and Rosh Shigar, like, you don't know what your students do when they go on vacation. Um, like when they're not in yeshiva, they're not just automatically like learning more Torah at home and to keep them its own stuff. They're like going to India and studying in ashrams and stuff. Um, so that was like then. Um, I was very uh, compelled by that ability to sort of criticize Riv Cook and the sense of sort of intellectual freedom not being so tied to Riv Cook. Right, without attacking Riv Cook. It's, it's, no. inter- it's within the same worldview, sort of, but then within the same worldview, there's multiple opinions you can disagree. He, Right, that kind of. He also even makes a point of saying that when Rukuk said that it made sense. <laughs> Rukuk, uh, so you'll go to the first half of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century, Rukuk studied Vlajin, like that was true. <laughs> and he was sort of true to himself and lots of the people he saw, and he says they were just, um, they were just naturally Jewish. Um, it doesn't work for everyone Rukuk saw. Rukuk was dealt, uh, dealt at length with trying to, to fit secular Jews into this model because he has to encounter these sort of secular Zionists um, but essentially, Richard Gar says it made sense for a cook, but it doesn't make sense, you know, 50, 70 years later uh, when people are still saying the same thing. Um, and what's happened in that, that sort of statement is he's shifted Riff Cook from someone who is really an idealist. Riff Cook says multiple times, he says, okay, reality might appear to be one way. You have to, to learn to see beyond that to the real truth. He says even like most basic level, he says, we see reality as made up of lots of different things. You have to learn to see past that to realize reality is all just one thing, which is God. Um, so similarly, like people might seem, Jews might seem to be secular, to learn to see past that to how they're really religious. Um, and Roshigar wants none of that. Roshigar wants you to see what reality is and how you experience it. And that's what reality is. You're not trying to see beyond it. Um, in a, a very real sort of classic sense, God is is found in reality as it's experienced. Um, and so okay. that's why he uh, can critique Rukuk and say Rukuk was looking at his reality and that made sense, but in our reality it doesn't make sense. I hear. So yeah, they said that is the first, that is what drew you into Rav Shigar. And then there's, there's more levels to it. That, yeah, so what continues to, to really appeal to me is that um, close attentiveness to reality and to lived experience. And so a really good example of this, I think, is, um, is the question of what does it mean to be a Jew in the modern world? Um, he'll like present different examples. This is like, this is, uh, or different models. Like this is what Harald Soloveitchik saw, and this is how Professor Yishai Leibovitch saw, and he like has his understandings of them. Um, he sees them as being in different ways, um, compartmentalizing, saying like there's the, the world of Judaism and the world of um, secular, knowledge or the secular world and you can sort of live in your Jewish world and do what you need to do in the secular world or you however you want to do that um, navigate that um, those different models and he for various points in his life also talks about the the value of what he calls the Haredi model um, he says, this is not the, the way the Haredi society of today but there's like an authentic or somehow like rectified Haredi model that is about being so totally immersed in Judaism that you aren't even aware there's really other stuff out there. Um, and that um, he really finds that sort of very romantic image of the Haredi community um, very compelling. 
But at a certain point in time, he realized it's just not realistic for who modern Jews are and that his model, what it means to be a modern Jew is to be both simultaneously both modern and Jewish, or modern and religious. Um, and that you live with, in, he calls it living in multiple worlds. Um, you live sort of wholly in both worlds and you manage that interplay um, as best you can. Different people will manage it differently. Um, so in several places, he likes to use the word schizophrenic to apply to that. Um, it's pulled in all directions. Um, and I think it is the model I found that speaks most deeply both to my own experience, but also those to my peers and my students. Um, and the that attentiveness to like reality, oh, we are a really specific kind of people um, now is that are just because the, the way our society has changed and the way, um, you know, American Jews have become absorbed in uh, American like culture, uh, Israeli Jews, <laughs> Israeli religious Jews have been absorbed into secular Israeli culture in many ways, or have even picked up American culture. Um, and I'm not sure, I guess, what it's like in Holland um, for people who live there. But we're very weird people in Holland. <laughs> According to all the other Europeans, we think we're the only ones who are normal. But that's this discussion. Uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, so how does that work out then with values? Because that's something that, um, like, like if I have a value, for instance, uh, what, what are the hot topics? Like, uh, I don't want to make it too controversial, but there's certainly values today in 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 the overall Western world, which is you know, it's also a very general generalized thing, but it's certainly on a level of government, there's certain things allowed that are not allowed in the Torah, right? Certain people can marry each other, like uh, like gay marriage or uh, or, uh, or, um, or other things, uh, like uh, hot topics on um, abortion, things like that. I was, this is very American, what I'm bringing up right now. But, you know, and, you know, some will say, or people will say, if you look uh, 100 years ago, religious Jews saw these things uh, as prohi prohibited in uh, in halacha. I'm not going to go into the details of, of, of these things, how much it is prohibited or not, but the, basically the idea that like now our values change to society would rush your guard and say we should practically change or reanalyze re these these texts or, or adjust our values to the modern values. And you, you get the question, I hope. Yeah, I absolutely get the question. Um... The question of how far it can be stretched and things like that is always uh, hard to answer. Um, but Roshigar does talk about the possibility of like changing values in, in the Torah. Um, so in an essay um, called in Hebrew, it's Halicha, Halicha Ve'munah, but in, um, in, it was published in English in 2017. Um, There's a book called Faith Shattered and Restored. It's published in English um, as a religious life in the modern era. So there he makes a point of differentiating what he sees as like different models of thinking about the Torah, either as Torah as a like purely earthly phenomenon, which is something he attributes to um, non-Orthodox Jews versus Torah on the other hand as being sort of a purely heavenly phenomenon. He attributes to more right-wing Jews. He sees the model is the ideal sort of both Torahs are stuck in between heaven and earth um, and therefore able to change with history, but also held back slowly. Torah always lags behind history and change in the Torah is only ever sort of framed in the language of the Torah, and which he, he discussed in another essay where he talks about um, dem democratic values in the Torah. Um, he says that the language of change in halacha, and halacha in Torah language for change, is always uh, bidiyavad. It's always after the fact. It's always a language of like, this isn't ideal. 
And right. so uh, um, he, he has a couple, of, he talks there about slavery. It's an essay in, uh, on, on democracy and democratic values. And he quotes from Cook's letters on slavery where, uh, I'm not gonna go into the whole story, but one of the things where Cook says is that like, look, it happened. <laughs> People have, like the human world as a whole, real quick say, or the Western world um, have decided slavery is wrong. Um, so that's itself of divine significance. The history has moved in this manner. Um, and so we can appreciate that for the fact that values have changed. And for Shigar, that makes sense. Um, and when you talk about halacha, you're going to say, look, um, halacha says this, but reality has changed. And in this changed reality, halacha looks a little different, right? Like halacha itself doesn't change. But in this new reality, and that's just the way halacha functions. Halacha functions not by changing internally, but by responding to change situations. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is not going to talk about that in terms of like, oh, there's a pure core of halacha. It's like, no, what halacha always is, is this thing that's responding to external situations. Um, and those situations change. And so halacha's sort of internal process for change is to, after the fact, respond to change situations. Right. Yeah, I, I hear that. I mean, there's a lot to say about that, of course. Uh, but I think yeah. overall, to some extent, I think most people obviously accept that because if you look at the history of halacha, that is certainly how it's operated, right? with the change of times and, and even in values, different different movements have, different movements arrived and have different values. For instance, this people, uh, this is a non-controversial topic probably, religious nationalism itself is a response to 19th century, I didn't say 20th century people, 19th century uh, European uh, nationalism. And that European nationalism also of course brought with it uh, democracy in many places. So, uh, so it's not nationalism in sort of the dark uh, 20th century sense, but that is religious Zionism is a response to that. And even though people see all the values of Zionism, oh, in the Torah, Eretz Israel, it's not. If you look before the 19th century, people simply didn't talk in those nationalistic terms, in those kind of uh, uh, mass movement, Eretz Israel kind of attitude. So that is that a, so I think most people that are religious Zionists today would, recognize that obviously religious Zionism is deeply rooted in the Torah, but wasn't always recognized as, uh, as such uh, by earlier generations. And that came with the time, right? Herzl is in Austria, he's not in uh, Tsar's Russia, right? There's no nationalism in Tsar's Russia at that time. He's from Austria. Right, I think uh, Rav Shugar was one of the things he points to as a sister of Cook internalized certain values into Judaism and was able to like bring them into Judaism and show how they're in fact very Jewish values in some way. Um, one way of thinking about it might be put it this way is that once you have seen the external value, this is how Cook would put it maybe, you can then notice it internally. Um, Cook has a, a letter where he says, we never needed Kant, we have had Kant's idea about new, the distinction to noumena and phenomena all the time. Um, we've always had that. And he sort of points to the Kabbalistic idea of malchut, the lowest sphera, which has nothing of itself. He says that's sort of human perception, which through which we perceive the rest of the sphera, whatever. Um, but no one ever thought of the sphera in terms of Kant before, like in and of themselves, like in, this, in terms of new phenomena. It's only once you've read Kant that you can go back and sort of reread um, the. You can, you can go back and reread. Uh, the sphere out that way. The same thing is true of nationalism. Only once your cook was able to like experience nationalism, think about nationalism, and read nationalism that way, you can look back at the Torah and at 
Kabbalah and things and being like, look, we can, this all sounds like nationalism. We can put this all in nationalistic terms, right? Like the, the Kabbalah talks about the Shekhinah and the sphere of Mahut as Knesset Israel, the congregation of Israel. And like, that doesn't have to be a very nationalistic thing, but it could right. very easily be a very nationalistic thing. Right. Uh, but no one thought of that until nationalism was a thing. Right, and, and, and the same bit Kabbalah itself, right? Kabbalah uses, Kabbalists in the Middle Ages and later, especially later, use sort of Neoplatonistic language, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those ideas are, are uh, not rooted in the Torah, just because you use that language of the, the time period, the way of thinking to express things. Or the Rambam with Aristotle, right, when he talks about God's unity, there is obviously a reality to God's unity, not just because he applies the Greek uh, concept of undivided unity, right, uh, to, to God's unity. There's clearly, we, we can say that like, uh, like he's not just being as, just Aristotelian, he is bringing out an idea in the Torah in Aristotelian languages, and how much that then is influenced by Aristotle itself, that is, uh, that is of course, a question of academics. But the idea that God is one. Right. I think internally that does require um, like uh, some significant reconceptualization of how you think about Jewish thought, right? Because one way of thinking is like Rambam was right or wrong, or Rambam was like right in some parts or wrong in other parts. Um, and you have like distinguish what was the right parts of the Rambam, what the wrong parts of the Rambam, uh, right? There's a there's a a, a, a English version of Hilchot um, Torah, the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, right? Not even his, not even the Morn of Uchim, um, the Mishnah Torah, but the first volume Mishnah Torah. A lot of it's like philosophy or metaphysics, and a lot of it is just straight up physics. Chapter four of Hilchot Torah is like cosmology, medieval neo Aristotelian cosmology. For sure. Um, and so this Hebrew as uh, English translation that came across at some point has like a letter at the, the either front or back of the volume said, look, the Rambam said this and either he was pulling from Aristotle. So he was wrong. And Aristotle's science proven Aristotle was wrong. So Rambam was wrong too, or it's Torah and he, he will eventually be proven right and modern science will be proven wrong. Right. So either you have to look at Rambam and figure out what are the true Torah elements and the false Aristotelian elements and sort of throughout history, look at people and try and figure out what's true or false. And the uh, Rav Soloveitchik at the, the end of the book, Halachic Mind, this sort of dense uh, philosophy of science and epistemology work he writes in the 1940s, he ends by saying, we're gonna come up to, we're gonna learn, like figure out the true philosophy of Halacha. And we'll be able to use that as a sort of measuring stick to evaluate Jewish philosophy throughout the ages and figure out what are the true parts of Rambam and the Kuzari and stuff and what are the wrong parts. Um, right. That's one way of thinking it. Another way of thinking about it is that there's no, is not like the true and false parts of Judaism as much because we're not capable of figuring what that out is. There's just everyone's best attempt to articulate the truth of Judaism to the best of their ability. And everyone does that a little differently in every generation. Um, and that becomes a little more complicated because it becomes hard to draw lines, the kind of lines you need for any sort of community, the lines you need when you do earnestly believe that what you're involved in is true. Um, but it means that you don't have to draw lines in very artificial manners. Right, like I couldn't tell you what parts of Rambam uh, were right and wrong, except the fact that his cosmology seems to be proven wrong by modern science. But right. like the theology parts of it, the parts of it that can't draw lines between the parts of it that are Jewish and the parts of it that are Aristotelian. Um, like right. even Rambam couldn't do that. He said, "Like the Greeks got it from the Nevi'im." Um, right. Like, I'm very analytic, so that is just my perspective. Is uh, is uh, is always very analytic, where I just 
take, there is a, a there's a, a, an essence that is revelation, then there is an essence that is Mesora, things that develop, and then the Rambam uses sort of his Aristotelian tools on those texts. And like, you can't always divide what's what, but I, you know, I'm, 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 too, I'm so abstract, it's a problem sometimes. Like, it's like, uh, you know, like the, to me, just the idea that like, uh, since we don't have a text in Revelation that explains to you how the cosmos works, right? Then when Rambam, describes how the cosmos works, we're gonna assume he got it from somewhere else. And if it then corresponds to what everyone thought uh, in his area in that time period, we, we can right. draw pretty clear conclusions, implausibility, right? I'm not saying no, but the problem but impossibilities. Right, it's definitely like. true. I think the problem is, is that you, if you're gonna keep it just like the, the core of what's sort of right um, is, the, is just with revelation, you run into problems once, like the, the farther back you go, um, for a couple of reasons. One, there's not that much to it, right? Like the Tanakh probably doesn't have that much to say about cosmology. Right. Um, and then, then you run into two other problems. One, what if it has a little bit to say about cosmology? It seems to be wrong, and that's the problem of Shemesh uh, Givon Dome. The sun stood still um, for Yoshua in Givon. Right. Um, like, how does that work? And then the problem of like, is speaking, this is Rambam's whole theory of the commandments as a, an intervention in a specific historical situation, right? How much of the Torah is not sort of a divine ideal, but is in fact some sort of accommodation to a specific historical situation. Right. Rambam no, sure. needs to try and differentiate what's what, but that's already happening in the Torah. There is no sort of untainted revelation that's not like some admixture of, of human and divine. Yeah, for sure. I think I had this conversation, I have Hasidic in-laws. I'm a convert to Judaism. So I bring my Goyesha cup to the Hasidic Shabbos table. And we have these conversations. And I, and I, I try to explain what you just said to people. And, uh, you know, with the simple, the simple explanations, like, um, well, for instance, we know that the, there's a market value of shekels <laughs> that are in the, in the halacha in different time periods, in the Torah, in, in, in the time of Chazal, right? So clearly the worth of a shekel is not divinely determined. Like the worth of currency is not a revelation, even though it's discussed in the revelation. And then the question is, uh, how far do you want to push that? And my answer is, of course, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. Just how do you know? Like, like ancient history is very hard. And then if you, uh, you know, like just like we don't know how much of Hammurabi is actually from Hammurabi, even though it's fully attributed to him. And how much is that? Uh, you know, like, so a human author and a divine author, he didn't tell us, right? He gave us a system that still exists. It evolved, but it still exists. And we don't know uh, what exactly he had in mind because he didn't tell us. And then, you know, you can apply other speculations on that, I guess. Right. Oh, yeah, we're, get, we're getting into way too philosophical. We have to go back to Rav Shagar, which is also philosophical, but it happens to be our topic. Um, I asked you earlier, before we started, what would be a good topic to raise Rosh Hashanah, and then you said honesty. I don't know if you touched on it already, but honesty, what, what did you mean by that? So I, I started touching on it a little bit in terms of his differentiate, the difference between Cook, who was very into ideas that were like behind reality as opposed to um, Rosh Hashanah is very into saying, this is the reality we live in. Um, I think the best way to put this is in terms of Rosh Hashanah's critique of ideology, that he, he likes to differentiate between sort of ideology and real faith uh, so the ideology is the 
words and ideas um, and sort of formulations that we use to explain our faith to ourselves. Faith is some sort of inner experience of religion or commitment to God or something like that. And we use, we, every, he says, everyone needs some sort of ideology. You have to use words to explain yourself to yourself, to other people. Um, but um, he says those words are themselves sort of secondary and you need to keep paying attention both to your own inner experience, like what do you really feel is true, what do you really believe, and to the world you live in, the way it changes around you and the way you experience um, God speaking to you from the, your lived experience, not necessarily in some sort of you like clear way. God doesn't necessarily give us messages on, you know, on a billboard, um, but um, most like at the most minimal level, you shouldn't keep believing in things that seem to be obviously wrong, given your lived experience. And so the best example of this is something like um, theodicy and like bad things happening to good people. And if you guys can say you shouldn't insist that no bad thing ever happened to a good person, that's, you know, maybe they secretly deserve it or maybe it's secretly good. It's like, no, it's possible for people to be basically good, <laughs> uh, like good enough that horrendous tragedy could not justly befall them and for bad things still to happen to them and that requires a different way of conceiving of god you can't conceive of god as being sort of strictly just um and so he'll invoke uh various cabalistic Hasidic thinkers who talk about god as sort of beyond human categories of good and bad um and you to uh to insist that god is still just beyond being sort of cruel to the people you're thinking you're discussing it also requires a denial of God, right? In some sense, there's the, um, I mean, one example is the Holocaust. The horrors of the Holocaust are a revelation of a truth about God, right? If it's, even if it's not a uh, revelation in the sense we typically think of, it has significant impl implications for theology that you have to grapple with seriously. Right, especially if you live through it. That's yes, he was, he was second generation. And he, he was child of survivors. And talks about being like marked with a genetic disease um, in terms of the sort of second generation trauma of the Holocaust. Uh, like as significant as the Yom Kippur War trauma was for him. Um, it, it was not the, the beginning of his exploration of the, or his immersion in the sort of traumatic revelation of God. Right, yeah, these, these things have tremendous impact of course, war and, and suffering like that. I was just reading about Tolkien's, he, Tolkien, the fantasy writer, right? You would think, okay, he writes a little fantasy. Turns out his work is deeply, he was in the trenches in World War I. He does, this man saw death and destruction together with his friend, uh, C.S. Lewis. They saw death. They saw the most brutal warfare ever happened till that day. Maybe even more brutal than World War II in, in, in terms of actual battle, right? Like the tragedy of World War II has been bigger on us on on for civilization. And, and, and local people, but in battle, World War I was brutal. And he was in the most, one of the most brutal battles. And that reflects in the Lord of the Rings. And he, for instance, like his view that like the world is becoming, uh, is becoming worse instead of better in his mind. No, I think about Lord of the Rings tension between sort of industrialization and nature and the connection between like war and industrialization um, and sort of the fires of war and stuff. Like that was World War I, was right. the first real large scale like mechanized warfare right it wasn't like the, the days of that you ride on your horse and have like a couple mercenaries fighting 
and then the village runs away, that's gone. Like it's like a machine gun and people go down and bombs fall over, whatever. Very intense. Yeah, that will bring in a break. I don't know. I don't got off on attention because I just read that and I was like, wow, I never thought of that, you know? Um, uh, where were we? Rashigar, honesty. Um, We're talking about uh, theodicy. Theodicy, right, right, right. Yeah, you know, like anyone on all from all philosophical schools of theology, you have to like write whether God causes the uh, Holocaust or just allows it to happen, right? Like, you know, like unless he has limited of power, right? Then he couldn't do anything, as some have suggested. Uh, Hals Kushner, I think, was his name, had suggested that God is not omnipotent, right? You have to deal with that question. Uh, of, of massive suffering. And he and he will say, you just have to, you accept that there is a reality and you accept the question, uh, but does he uh, then not see a need to answer the question? Um, well, he, he on some level really does answer it by saying like, God does horrifying things. I think maybe doesn't grapple with it in what people would say is all the way. You might say the question is, well, then why call him God? And why call God God? Like, what? Why care about a God and causes horrifying things? That's not a question for Oshigar. Um, He never sort of comes to that extent. He just he's more concerned on on an uh, individual level, right? Um, once you've said that God is beyond human categories of good and evil, um, and it's actually this ties back to what I said earlier. He often suggests God is somehow even opposed to normal human categories such that the only closest sort of experience you can have of God is when you step outside normal considerations is that in some way, the, the closest experience of God is a moment of suffering, that God doesn't slide gently into this world, God breaks into this world, uh, that the sort of our natural human existence that might be thriving in some sense is disrupted fundamentally by God's presence. And that's what suffering is like. He um, talks about the phrase that goes back to the Gemara, Yisurin Shoahava, sufferings of love. Um, but instead of saying, you know, like where Sajigon does, the sufferings of love is when God makes a person suffer in order to give them uh, more reward in the future, in sort of the uh, redemptive uh, yet to come. He uh, says, no, it's the sort of excessive contact of God that disrupts your life, but it is a closeness of God coming to be close to you that's like an act of love, but because God is so fundamentally opposed and like excessive in regards to human existence, that it is experienced as suffering. Right, I hear. That's a lot to process, though. Um, I hear, yeah. We have a few we have a few minutes, minutes left. And, and one thing I found really interesting is you teach a class on, uh, on where you compare sort of Rav Shagar and Rav Shalovetsik's thought, right? Now, Rav Shalovetsik uh, was, of course, a major influence on American Judaism. And I think a lot of American modern Orthodox Jews uh, relate to, through the Judaism, to some extent, influenced by Rav uh, Shalovetsik. So could you could you tell a little bit about the, the differences and similarities about between the two, doesn't have to be there's, long. There's, there's a, um, a lot to say about that. There's a lot of similarities. Uh, I think enough that would surprise people. Um, some of that goes to direct influence. So, so Rav Shigar, um, in one of his first books that was published called 
um, Loving You Unto Death, or is a, uh, a small book of Shirim on uh, the Sugi of Kiddush Hashem in, in Masechah Sanhedrin. Um, in the introduction, he like, explicitly attributes um, like his method of studying Gemara, at least in part to Rosolovechik. He's very influenced by Rosolovechik, and he'll quote Rosolovechik in a lot of ways, um, both in his Gemara Shirim and in his Drashot and essays. Um, but also very different in a lot of ways. And um, one is like, a lot of possibilities for what makes that distinction. One good possibility in terms of like the relationship between secular culture and, uh, and Judaism is uh, that Neurosovetic lives outside of the land of Israel. He lives in um, you know, uh, Russia and Germany and the United States versus Richard lives in the land of Israel. And in the land of Israel, at least, you know, post uh, 1948, you don't have to worry as much about having clear lines between secular and religious because they're Jewish on both sides of the line. Right. Versus in America, people who get involved in secular culture are de facto getting involved in non-Jewish culture. Right. Um, and that makes it really interesting to see like the way of Chagar's idea they're catching on in America more recently and like how will they transition to a very different um, cultural setup. Uh, where going from where Jews are the majority to where Jews are the minority. Uh, but another another really interesting difference, I think, is also the question of um, not is God, you know, imminent in human reality versus transcendent um, at, outside of reality, because both Shigar and Slavagic emphasize those. But I think uh, like they both talk about both aspects of God, uh, God as transcendent and God as sort of imminent. Uh, but I think there are significant ways in which uh, Shigar is more likely to see God as sort of present in existing human reality versus uh, emphasizing God transcending reality and sort of challenging our reality. Um, so actually there's a, um, a book called Halichot Olam, which is on halacha and history by Rav Shigar. And the first essay, he talks about how Rav uh, and sort of the Brisker Derech in general believes there's this Higayon Shel Torah, the, uh, this like Torah logic is somehow superior to human logic. And by the end of the essay, Shigar sort of articulates his own understanding, which is yes, the Torah has its own sort of internal logic, but that's not superior to our own like values and experience because that's another second source of like divine revelation. Uh, and you shouldn't let either one overwhelm the other. You have to sort of live with those multiple elements and live with that tension um, and let them both sort of mutually shape you. Right. Like you said that like God puts you in a certain place in time and that itself, he, like that itself is significance uh, that he yeah. placed you there. Right. So you bring something to the table that might also have divine influence. Interesting. And yeah, I never thought of these things. That's uh, wow. What else, what else would, uh, would be comparable or different between the two? Um, Hmm. What about their Zionism itself? That, right, their Zionism. Um, Roslovacic is, in a sense, um, very useful for Rav Shigar in his Shigar's turn away from um, a like very strict redemptive understanding of Zionism, where like the the state of Israel as it is now is somehow already messianic. Um, he doesn't necessarily turn to Rav Soloveitchik, but he quotes in here there, Rav Soloveitchik's um, Kol Dodido Fik, so it's known now, uh, his book on Zionism. And one of the things that happens in that book is um, 
that Rishigar um, Rosovich talks about the value of the state and things, but he never puts it in the sense of like, oh, this is Mashiach right now. He says it can have a religious value without it being already messianic. Um, very interestingly, that Rosovich's book gets taught in modern Orthodox uh, yeshivot or Zionist yeshivot nowadays. Um, and very often it gets taught as if it was the same sort of um, really messianic understanding of the state um, that Rav Cook teaches or Cook's son and his students teach. Um, but Rav Shigar wants to pivot away from that. And so he pivots towards Rav Soloveitchik almost in terms of Zionism. Um, but he comes from a very different place. He comes very much from the idea that the state is redemptive now. And then he experiences the state doing bad things. He, he critiques the state of Israel for dealing um, weapons, like for being a international arms dealer to right. and specifically dealing weapons to like bad actors on the, the national international stage. Right. Um, and then he also really, the, the, the best example of this is the disengagement. He experienced the disengagement very traumatically as um, the state of Israel or perhaps like secular Israel attacking the, the religious Zionist minority um, and as a sort of tear in the nation and the, um, the, the uh, collective entity of uh, like the Jewish people. Um, and it was very traumatic for me. It's it very powerful. Um, they just put out a, a new book came out in Elul called Briti Shalom on like Roshigar's thought on war and peace and Israeli society. Um, and it has some old texts, but one of the new texts is a very emotional uh, piece, very short, but talking about like really feeling attacked. It's very intense. You think it's easier for Rav Shagar, because he's Israeli, to just think about the state as a real thing that does good and bad, and as a citizen criticize it and then integrate that into his thought? Then, like for instance, Americans, where like Israel is not just Israel, but it's also something you have to have apologetically defend in the public arena in people's mind as a good thing. And I like and I mean, how many modern Orthodox rabbis will speak? about Israel's, in America, about Israel's weapons dealing and whether it's good or bad, right? Could be that you argue it's good. But like, do you think that he was much more free to talk like that because he was an Israeli citizen? He wasn't talking about an abstract country that you need to defend? Right, so on one level, there's a question of abstraction or not. Um, I had a very powerful experience that uh, a couple of years ago that was really stuck with me, which is I was walking with someone I knew who had just made Aliyah and it was, uh, it was around Sukkot time where um, the pomegranates and the trees have already blossomed and they have begun to fall off the trees at this point. At the beginning of Elul, they start blossoming and the pomegranates everywhere. It's really a wonderful experience. Um, um, and then they start falling off the trees and like we walked past this pomegranate that like burst open on the sidewalk and was like starting to rot. And the person was very taken aback because in the United States, pomegranates are religious objects right? They're part of religious life. Oh, and they really? come in to your religious life at a certain moment in the religious calendar and then disappear. Pomegranates don't go bad if you're an yeah, American just, Jew. They're just fresh, um, beautiful, six on the 13 pieces in there. Beautiful. Yeah. So this was a much more like concrete reality. And sometimes if you live here, you're forced to face the concrete reality. Um, I think there's a little more to it though as well, which is that um, there's sort of various ways of identifying with something. Um, you can identify as um, part of something or identify with the values of something. And those two tend to go together. When you're part of a group or part of some sort of collective entity, you both feel like you're part of it and you tend to share some sort of values with it. If you are part of something and you disagree with it entirely, you feel stuck and imprisoned. 
right? right. If you um, identify with something's values, but you don't feel part of it, then, um, I don't know, you're a friend of it, uh, you're associated with it in some way. Um, there are all sorts of different ways that can work out. So if you live in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel, you are going to more naturally, I think, be able to feel a sense of identity with the country and with the state, um, while also being very critical of it and feeling like it's doing bad things. And those two can exist more easily together. I think if you live outside the land of Israel, then it's much more of a tension to both feel like you're somehow part of and identify with the state of Israel on a, like feeling like you're part of, like you belong to it in some level, um, if you're also critical of it, right? It's because it's, um, once you're, once you're critical of the state of Israel and you feel like it's not living up to its own values or the values you attribute to it, it's um, very hard to keep identifying with it on the level of like, oh, I'm part of it. I belong to it on some level because like what make, like really what makes you attached to it. Um, so it's not impossible to do. There are plenty of American Jews who are both very critical of the state of Israel and feel like their Jewish identity connects them to the state of Israel somehow. Right. Um, but there's uh, both plenty of American Jews who, as they are become more and more critical of the state of Israel, find it harder to identify. Even religious. Israel. Even and religious there are, yeah, and there are plenty of Jews who do take the opposite extreme, who their sense of identifying with the state of Israel rules out any possibility of like realistic critique. Right. Right. Very interesting. Um, what else? What else would be a major difference? I don't know. I mean, we're probably running out of... Uh, of time or material, I don't know. Yeah, so I was thinking of right now, this in terms of redemption is I think also, um, and I, I don't know, I can't, I'm not sure why this is, but Rosovacic, um, I think he, they both, they both of them talk very interestingly about um, the past and the future, right? They're both very concerned with what time is and time is somehow more than just like a, a dimension we, in which we live so much as time is like real aspects of our own existence. Um, the, probably the best example for this is my famous example for Rosalvechik is the end of, um, of Halakhic Man. He talks about the ability to like see your past as the, the part of the story that shapes you and led you to who you are. And that changes the meaning of the past for you and the future to which you're oriented. But also in, in Lowly Man of Faith, he talks about being part of like, it's everywhere. Um, and from there you shall seek, he talks about being part of a chain and the way the we're receiving from the past while transmitting to the future. Um, and I think what's interesting is that he sees that throughout as a very coherent sort of one directional thing, right? You can affect the meaning of your past because you, you decide how it, it shapes you and you decide if you're going to be a meaningful member of this chain that's moving in one direction, things like that. Um, for a Shigar, interestingly, the past is often something which pulls us back or which we sort of are trying to push back towards this text where he talks about really what's redemptive is the past um, that the um, he, he cites um, Walter Walter Benjamin the Jewish German thinker who talks about progress as like the history of destruction um, from the time when the Jews left Eden there's a wind blowing through history that is just annihilating everything and it's like the progress is this horrific um, really tale of, of forward movement leaving bodies in its way um, and so for Roshigar, he's sort of critiquing liberal Zionism, um, liberal, not small L liberal, not big L liberal, like liberal as in the sense of like the human driven progress of 
the nation states of moving to some sort of secular redemption. Um, and he says, no, we have to like retreat into religious ritual on some level, and that's how we experience redemption. And he says that like, sure, we might be uh, members of modern society in our everyday life, but when we go into the, the shul, the shul is supposed to lag behind modern society because only that's how we could take a redemptive breath of fresh air and step outside modern society. Um, while for the future, Shuar talks about the future as something that sort of shatters the present. The present is not um, going to transition easily into the time of Mashiach. Um, that when we think about Mashiach, he, he, he cites the rabbis uh, Agadot about the Messianic era as this sort of like, I want to say catastrophic, but like radically different reality, just constituted by miracles that's totally different from our reality. It's just like, it's not an accident that there's no straight line from here to there. That when you imagine the messianic era, it should cause you to challenge everything you think you know about the way society has to be. That like what it means to live in society for the most part is to get used to it and the thing, sort of, it sort of feels necessary, right? We sort of tend to assume the way things are is the way they will continue to be. There's not going to be radical shifts, right? We might have a different president next week. We might have the same president next week in the United States, but it's going to be basically the same. Right. Um, but uh, the messianic impulse should lead us to imagine things might be radically different. I actually thought of this most powerfully uh, when observing the waves of protest that rocked the U.S. since the beginning of the, of the summer, really. Right. Um, but it started with the calls to like defund the police. And I mean, I don't know what that would look like. I know that like my Jewish community where I live really required Jew the police in many times to, to, to defend the shoal um, where I lived in, before I lived in Los Angeles, I lived in San Diego and the shoal had Molotov cocktails thrown at it a bunch. The rabbi there is a good friend of mine who's recently attacked um, and the police are <laughs> helping. They weren't great to begin with, but they're helping there. Um, but if you can't imagine a world different from the one you live in, then that's a problem for a cigar, right? If people say, we can't imagine a world without police, that's a failure of imagination. Mm -hmm. And on some level, it's to have given up on any real messianic change. Like that's not even to say that, that people should defund the police, but you should be able to, to realize the way things are is not the way they have to be. Right, right. That's very interesting. Uh, quick question. Um, so a lot of the postmodern thinkers who, who from the 70s, they were, they used to be socialists and then they became sort of post-socialist. They had, they gave up on material means for utopia and they were very disillusioned because the Soviet Union turned out to be an unbearable hellhole. You know, it wasn't like this paradise that they had imagined it would be. And uh, so they got a little bit disillusioned. Does Rav Shigar have a utopian view or does he not? Because a lot of the postmoderns did not have a utopian view anymore, if I understand correctly after that. Um, Rav Shigar, when no, he talks just, about the messianic age, for instance, does he have a sort of utopian ideal that we should strive to or? Um, not that he, he strictly articulates. He has a couple of places where he talks about um, the possibility of the state of Israel as a um, an orlogoyim, but it's sort of a, a an ethical, um, whole, like a, a real ethical ideal that we should create a state that um, is just 
uh, he doesn't even go in, he doesn't develop it really more than that, is somehow incredibly ethical uh, and lives up to the sort of prophetic vision of the end of days. Um, for him, much of what that interests him is because that is a, a way of partially achieving some sort of redemptive state, right? Because he starts from the, the cookie and religious Zionist, the state is already messianic. He says, how can we achieve a sort of messianic state? We can achieve it ethically. We can work on making the state ethical. Um, but particularly by the time you get to the disengagement, he's very much is not a believer in the, in the state apparatus um, as a possibility for realizing anything redemptive and politics really getting us there. Um, and utopia for him, Messianism for him, is mostly about the way it it challenges our reality now, and and we need it's to remind us about even if we can't sort of figure out how to get to a better world from here, we need to remember the possibility of it. Um, and I think much more than he thinks the state is going to do that for us, um, he turns towards community relations and thinks that like on a grassroots level, um, he talks a little about. Um, Blanking what it was called. There was a, a uh, he has an, a, an essay about um, tzedakah and social change. Um, it was published in Luchot Veshivrayuchot, but it's on the occasion of um, there was a something like a kashrut uh, certification, but for ethical things, uh, not based on like strict kosher laws that we think of it. Um, but in that essay, he talks a lot about, he calls he'arat panim, of like a lighting up your face literally to another person it means like warm interpersonal relations he thinks that um and this is a line that goes back to like early secular zionist that adam adam's eight goes much earlier there was a big thing in secular zionism that man is to man a wolf um homo homini lupus i think is the original latin for that um that we, the way we exist in this world is fundamentally antisocial. that we exist in this world as uh, things are a zero-sum game on some level maybe for the most part you know, we get along well, but if when the chips are down, we're going to choose ourselves over other people. And that our goal as human beings should be to try and overcome this. They, um, his friend Riviere Dreyfus wrote that Roshigar once said um, his whole like purpose in this world was to mitakein in the, the Kabbalistic language to be a tikkun for this issue of Adam um, Adam's Abe, man is to man a wolf, and to achieve a state of heras panim a warm interpersonal relations that are just giving and open to the other person and trying to create positive relationships that are not zero sum. Interesting. Okay. Wow. That, I like that. Um, I think we're going to end it here. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thought. You, you have, um, you have some final words here uh, that you would like to leave to the listeners about Rav Shagar or maybe uh, where they can find you and your work. Um, well, my work can be found on, uh, my writing can be found on the warehouse. Um, uh, there's also a, a, an old website called Daf Aleph that has some of my short essays in Rav Shigar on it. Uh, my translations um, of Rav Shigar's his Drashot can be found on the website of uh, Professor Alan Brill. Um, mm -hmm. I think the website is now kavana.blog. That's K-A-V-V-A-N-A-H.blog. Um, Very good blog. I can be, yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of my Drashot, uh, Rav Shigar's Drashot I translated on there. Um, Alan edited them, hopefully, uh, next year or so. They should be, be published at some point um, mm. in a book form. People will be able to get. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll come back on the blog, on the the uh, podcast at that point to hawk the book. Um, and that can be found on Facebook and Twitter, Lady Morrow. Um, Twitter in particular, I'm very active. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And thank, thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. 
And hopefully I'll be back with more interesting stuff next week. If I find out how to turn off recording. Oh, here we go.